I'm Robin Mellory-Pratt, and this is Transforming Luxury, a new podcast series from the business of fashion, in which we're investigating how market disruption, new technology, and growing consumer scrutiny are driving transformative change in the $300 billion luxury goods market over a special six-episode series presented in partnership with Klarna. Today, we're talking about luxury service. From the emergence of Paris's haute couture industry, when names like Charles Worth and Madame Grez were becoming the prototype luxury brands among European and American elites, luxury service was defined by how well specialist businesses catered to the unique demands of their uniquely demanding clientele. As the personal luxury goods industry grew and globalized over the succeeding century, it maintained much of the spirit of the couturiers and savoir-faire maisons that founded it. The race to attract and retain the customers rich enough to afford the ever more expensive items produced by competing luxury brands has seen dizzying amounts of money spent on clienteling, the industry term for building a one-on-one relationship with customers. But today, market leaders' ambitions are even higher, using technology to make the personalized experiences once only available for the global elite, accessible to larger and larger groups of consumers, while mapping those consumers' desires and interests in previously unimaginable new ways, building luxurious service that is cohesive, connected and, critically, effective across the multitude of touchpoints consumers can now access brands through. But before we talk about luxury's personalised service going digital, I want to kick off rooted in the physical world. As luxury products have become widely available, with homogenised flagship offerings situated in most major global cities, the battle to stand out has intensified. Bespoke service and bespoke products are increasingly important tools for customer acquisition, engagement and retention in luxury, or in other words, service. To hear more, I have the pleasure of welcoming Melissa Morris back to Transforming Luxury. Melissa founded her luxury leather Maison Metier in 2017. Her customers include Kate Moss, Catherine the Duchess of Cambridge, Nicole Kidman and Conor O'Brien. Melissa, how significant is personalised service to your success? goes back to your earlier question that I don't think I fully addressed around how I, without the deep pockets of the big luxury houses, how we're kind of making the mark that we're making. And I think it, it all goes back to the obsession with the customer. Everything we do is focused on the customer. There's no halo effect from big marketing campaigns that we hope trickle down. Rather, we just, everything we do is focus on the customer from design to communication and, and everything there within. And so... Our connection with our clients is vital. I'm so focused on who they are, and I have such a deep understanding of who they are, and created the brand because I felt that this niche of luxury connoisseurs was no longer being spoken to. And so I wanted to speak to them and address them. It goes back to the market gap. And by being so focused on that, we're able to have a real dialogue with them. I think one of the best decisions that we made, which I mean, definitely got a lot of questions about, but we opened our store in London as the first port of call when we when we launched the brand. And actually, we signed the lease of the store on the day of the Brexit vote. That was how committed I was to a physical space. Luckily, it's been a bet that's paid off in spades. Not only has the store been incredibly successful commercially, but it's allowed us to have that dialogue with a client. I don't have to analyze data to think about who they are, what they want, or anything. I have such a deep conversation with them, and we develop such a deep relationship with them that we really understand what they're looking for, what they love about Metier, what they love specifically about products, and then it evolves into 
a lot of bespoke commissions, which has turned into, ah, you know, you solved my problem here. I now have also this problem. Can you create something for me? And then we'll kind of spec it out and, you know, really understand what they want. So, you know, for example, one of my clients is a writer and she has had a bunch of scripts and she asked if I could create something for her to house all of her scripts in so it looks really nice in her home office, but then also she could just take one off the shelf and bring it to a meeting if she needed to. And so um, we mentioned my mom was a math teacher, my dad was a lawyer. Um, and so growing up, I used to see in his office those like big manila folders with the big rubber bands around them, and it was a mess, but I still loved how that all looked. So I tried to modernize that and created these folios with different compartments inside for her for that purpose. But then as I was developing it, my team and I were like, wow, these are so amazing. This is something now we want to bring to all of our customers. And it's been a huge success. The bespoke aspect of our business is such a great way for us to deepen our relationships with our clients and also get a really clear understanding of what's missing um, in the assortment and gives me a clear direction on what to make next. I always say we have the best clients in the world. It's on paper seems like an incredibly diverse group. It's half men, half women very global. The age range is relatively wide. They don't want a big logo. They have enough to say on their own, but they need products to work for them. What I've found is when I've gotten one bespoke request, what's good for one is good for everyone. Everyone seems to be wanting that. Um, And so a lot of our bespoke requests that I've then brought into the line have turned out to be big successes. How are you going to continue to offer the service that you have so well achieved in London at a larger scale or add to it in a, in a different way. It's a culture. Everyone on the team lives and breathes for the customer. And so when we our team is growing and as part of the onboarding, it's drilled into your head that it's all about the customer, that the customer and their experience comes first and foremost before anything. And I think that that mindset and that love and appreciation for our clients and respect for them translates out. So as we grow, you know, that philosophy and that belief comes first and foremost. You can definitely experience when a company's culture is not focused on the customer versus when it is. There's some great examples. I think Apple is very much, for example, focused on the customer. Glossier, there's a lot of businesses that I think really make it clear that they're focused first and foremost on the customer. There's others that aren't. When you go in and no one will even acknowledge you and no one recognizes you and no one even asks for if you need any help and then you're standing in the fitting room waiting for another size freezing <laughs> you know and that that's from nothing more than a lack of focus on the customer that if everyone is very clear that we are as a brand the customer first brand where you walk in and you feel really cared for I think that that then translates out and that is how ultimately we'll manage our growth it's just inherently part of this kind of warmth is inherently part of the brand and will remain so. Today, for major players of scale with the resources to invest in it, efforts to effectively digitize personalized in-store service, which generates much higher conversion rates due to recommendations and immersive experiences, are being looked to as key drivers of future competitive advantage. Earlier in the series, Lucas Solker, the head of luxury goods at Bernstein, shared his thoughts on the subject. Luxury goods brands need to concentrate on uh, their customers. Uh, They know all of them by name. They know what they're doing. They know what they're looking at. They know what they're saying. They know what they are buying. So 
an in-depth understanding of different consumer groups within uh, your portfolio and uh, therefore setting up your product offer, communication and broader marketing approach to fit those different consumer audiences is going to be the most important capability that companies will develop. In other words, CRM and uh, data science have to be at the core of what you do. And I think that quite simply, the data science department is going to be the new marketing engine of luxury goods companies. As we're discovering, the luxury service revolution is now rooted in creating what's known as a single customer view, the ability to usher an individual to the products and services you offer that will truly benefit them by truly understanding them. And that opportunity stems from shifting generational attitudes towards data sharing. It's a subject matter that Sebastian Simakowski, the CEO of Klarna, understands innately. Klarna, the global payments and shopping service which has over 90 million active consumers, operates with 250,000 merchants in 17 countries. Sebastian, how would you describe the concept of data-driven personalized service to those that are new to the idea? In essence, like, it's not necessarily an entirely new idea because if you think about like the original concept of your you know, Amex Platinum card, you were supposed to have a Platinum card because you were supposed to go into the restaurant and like wave your amazing Platinum card and the restaurant owner would be like, oh my God, it's a Platinum, so I need to bring the best wine and best food and, and so forth, right? So the idea that a payments company or a bank helps signal who the customer is in order to help a retailer give them a better experience and a more personalized experience makes a ton of sense to me. It's always been the case. Um, and I think it can just be done in a much more sophisticated and smarter and better way for both consumers. And we are right now developing products that are trying to find a way to allow consumers to actively, by their own choice, share specific pieces of information with retailers in such a way that they can serve them more effectively. What a bank has and what a payments company has is a very deep understanding of people's interest and spending habits across multiple retailers, across multiple things, right? Now, the question then is, can we, in a way that benefits the consumer, utilize that data to allow them to get a better experience? Now, obviously with GDPR compliant and you know all of these things, but is there a way forward in which we allow that? And that's what we're experimenting a lot with, is like, how do we, how do we help retailers understand better who this customer is so that they can serve them better? Um, and give them a better experience. And then everyone wins uh, around that, as long as we're very open and transparent about the fact how data is being utilized and so forth, right? Uh, according to the standards. Sebastian, that segues perfectly into my next question, which is generally about Gen Z consumers and their shifting ideas around luxury and their willingness to share data or their willingness to interact with financial services or organizations or businesses in a way that will create a more impactful experience for themselves. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience in that area and, and how you see its potential moving forward? So we had this first generation of tech companies who unfortunately, over time, lost their thoughts around and the ideas around like, how do we treat consumer data? What's right? What's wrong? How can you do it in a, in a good way? And so right now, there's a strong trend against it's all about privacy. It's all about, you know, locking things down, etc. But at the same point of time, I think that the whole purpose of digitalization is like 
is utilizing data to create value, a big piece of the value that we're creating. Like look at the traditional Amazon, the person who bought this book also bought that book. I mean, it's data, it's the information, understanding of a customer that allows us to create richer experiences. So I think that we try to think about, look, our understanding is if you sit down and you have a calm, good conversation with a consumer and you say, look, if you are in control of what data is being shared and you have full transparency, and if you then, would you then be willing to share some specific aspects of your, of your data in order to get a better experience, a better price, a better, you know, whatever it might be, then the answer is always going to be yes. Or very often, like obviously you're going to have a selected small piece of people that don't agree, but, but a lot of people will agree. It's how it's been done that's been the problem, not that it has been done. And I think that's where a lot of like right now media and everything, we're kind of a little bit lost in this big thing. But I think over time, this is the direction. And so I think it, that's really where you have to go is to have to strive for how do we create solutions that allow people to share their data, to allow people to do that in a thoughtful way and to get value for it. How will the role of the physical store evolve as the path to purchase becomes less linear? It is much more likely that over time, they really become showrooms, right? It feels like that's the natural direction, that there will be much less stock in the actual stores and that you will be able to go in there and try things on for the interest of it or try products or be guided on products. They will be smaller. They won't be as big uh, because they don't have stock, so they don't need it. And they would rather be populated by people who guide you towards brands, products and help you educate on it and get to know it. Maybe you will bring the product with you from that store, but most often you will put an order in, in the physical store. And then by the time you're home, it will already be, you know, sitting with you. What are the most valuable insights you can share in how consumers and businesses can interact with each other in a way that creates value for both parties? If you think about the advertising industry, it's an extremely inefficient industry because uh, it, it targets a lot of people that are entirely irrelevant for that specific messaging, right? I was thinking about it because I was, uh, I think it was Waze, you know, the... Um, driving uh, GPS thing. And they asked me a question when I was registering now. They said like, do you want personalized ad or non-personalized ads? And I was like, of course I want personalized ads. Why would I like non-personalized ads? We're gonna bore the crap out of me, right? Like, so I think, that, <laughs> I think you can create a lot of value for consumers by helping them. Like, I mean, the troves and amounts of data that they've shared with banks over the years is, is massive, right? The problem is banks have never utilized that data for the benefit of the consumer, but only for the benefit of themselves. So I think that there are tremendous things. It might be like get the right offer, find the right product, make sure you don't overpay, also excite you about new things that are more likely to be relevant for you. So I think there are a lot of these things that we see as opportunities. So that's definitely a direction I believe in. I think right now there's a lot of focus on the, the platforms that are allowing um, smaller and bigger retailers to efficiently sell online. But there's another area which I call like the curation area, which is much more kind of unclear, like Instagram shopping versus this and like what, what's going to happen in all that space. And I sincerely believe that we will see more and more consumers giving other consumers advice about products. I think that whole area, I mean, there's already been some of it online with reviews and stuff. I think it's just going to explode. And I think consumers will be paid for it. Like I always, I always joke, I have this idea of like a black mirror episode where uh, a person goes into a barbecue to their neighbors and then like, 
you know, they stand there and they're like, oh, by the way, like, I love these sausages. What are these sausages? And then, the, you know, the neighbor says, oh, actually, you know, it's uh, Lithels, this and that. And then the person like being interested automatically, their, their phone just makes an order for it. And at the same point of time, you see this like small like cushing happening over the neighbor who's now getting like, you know, a couple of cents for promoting a, a sausage, right? I think at the end, even as people may have a lot of opinion about that world, um, I think it's very likely that directionally speaking, that's where we're going. Um, that, you know, we're all promoting products all day. I th- I'm, I'm particularly interested in a lot of, I spoke to a lot of the multi-level marketing businesses in the last year, because I mean, a lot of them have been seen as like less real businesses and got a lot of criticism, maybe more in Europe than in the US, but still. But I actually find something around those businesses extremely exciting. I think about how you digitalize that aspect. And I think there's going to be a massive growth in that. But it has to be connected with value. Like that's one of our main principles around this internally at Klarna is that we can never build a service utilizing consumers' data if we cannot prove that it created some piece of value for the consumer. Because then like, then you're off to a different place, right? So like, I think a younger generation is more accustomed to that and, and does feel more comfortable with that. Because they're just, you know, this just brought up online. They share things all the time, right? Like everything is out there all the time. So I always say like, I'm going to probably be quite nervous getting into a self-driving car (laughs) because like, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical about it because I'm a little bit too old for it. But like my kids, they would be like, whatever, like, I don't care who drives the car, right? So like, I think there's always some generational aspects to these things. With every click, pause, hover, or any other small, insignificant act that identifies intention online, we are all of us creating a real-time data trail of our interests and our desires. And leading retailers are utilizing innovative new technology to piece that all together to create a picture that provides better service to their customers. Holly Rogers is one of the executives in the vanguard of that charge. She began her career at Neiman Marcus before roles at Chanel and Etaportet, and in 2019, Brown's owner Farfetch named Rogers its chief fashion officer. Since taking the helm as chief executive of Brown's in 2015 and transitioning to chair in 2021, Holly has quadrupled its business, which has itself expanded to include, in addition to Brown's East, its Shoreditch store, a new flagship store in London's Brook Street, which has been designed and built with technology and personalization at the forefront of the experience. The overall concept was keep it elevated, keep it luxury, but really modernize what that view is with that technological layer. And we have three pillars to the company, or rather to the new store, really wanting to play into the personalized and personalization piece, which is really um, integral to where we're going, as we've talked about a few times throughout our conversation. Circular economy, which is obviously a conversation everybody needs to be having and should be having at this point and then service products because this goes beyond what you can buy from the store when you walk out but also really integrates in how you can inspire advise and facilitate moving beyond just the fashion space that we exist in so those are the the basic pillars of the store and really integrating in the idea of experiential at this point is no longer a new word to be using, but really wanting to make sure that change is constant, that we have an area as you walk in the door where it's called the focus area, which is a play on a store that we used to have many years ago. And really it's showcasing the good and the great 
and the new and the interesting. We have an immersive room. And a lot of these harken back from our Shoreditch store. How is technology enabling Browns and Farfetch to really rethink the nature of customer service and customer experience? We really approached it from a human perspective. I think everything that we've done when we've thought about how you integrate technology into the space of um, shopping has really become with a human lens. And I know that sounds kind of crazy because so much of what we've done and things that have been talked about for years have been how do you do things faster, quicker, easier? And of course, that's all part of it. But it's also how do you enable things for a customer, ultimately, who wants to shop in a very different way than they have been over the last few years. The biggest part of that is integrating in the technology, the connected piece of that, but with a very human touch and element to it. What are the behaviours that you think are particularly compelling when you look forward as to how customers are likely to engage with retail brands and retail businesses? That's what's so interesting is you can't generalise at all about what a consumer is going to want or need. I think everybody is so different. You know, it goes back to even like taste, right? Everybody has such different tastes. So what your appetite is for um, the technology interplay in the shopping experience is very different uh, one from the next. And you have some that are incredibly savvy and they only want to come in and they only want to shop in a connected way. And other ones who don't care at all, they just want to shop. And so it's trying to understand and weave in that understanding when the person comes in the door, what is that appetite? How do we play into it? What is that service that we need to provide them with, um, even if they maybe don't realize they need it and introduce them? Because, you know, we've been in, um, open now for several months and it's so great when we have, um, you know, I've personally taken many people through the store now, just seeing how, People who would not maybe have necessarily had our app, because that's what's necessary in order to fully experience um, the connected journey. Once they get engaged, how excited they are. And so I think that's the interesting place of this is like, there's the people that are willing to do that. They're the people that just want to move fast and move quick. And maybe they already know how to do all of that. And they just want to continue getting what they want and get out the door because they've got now actually something to go to. And otherwise, it's an experience. And I think that ultimately we're getting to a place where with, with all of this information that we're sharing and willing to share, you understand as a consumer why you're doing that. And it's to better the overall experience and what you get out of it. Because ultimately, this is to benefit the customer. Obviously, it will benefit the retailer as well because you can be better informed about what you're talking to your consumer about as the journey progresses through even in that moment, but as it is online, offline for the years to come. You've previously used the term the connected journey. Can you break down what that means for us? The connected journey is just a term that we've actually coined and feel like it's probably the best and most meaningful way to describe what's going on because again, it can actually come in many different paths, if you will. And I think Ultimately, what we're trying to achieve is using technology, and in some cases that has existed, something that you've seen, so like the connected mirrors, 
this has been something that is not necessarily something new to um, people and what they've seen in certain experiences. It's definitely not something that's widely used, but it's definitely something that's been talked about. But it's how we integrate it in with the other back-end technology. So we've developed an in-store app that is specific to the inventory that we have in the store. It gives the shopping associate uh, full visibility of the entire catalog. It gives them visibility of the customer, who they are, if they've logged in, what they've last seen. Again, all of this is with the um, customer's consent. It allows them to see their wish list. It allows them to basically just get a, a, a full picture of who this customer is, what they like, what they're looking at, what they last viewed, what's important to them in the moment. Because obviously we all like change based on what our needs are at that time. If we're going to events, if we're going to parties now, if we're going to meetings, all of these things that would predicate uh, different needs uh, from a shopping perspective. And it gives them that visibility so that they can know and then suggest. Then there's the Browns app that we have in store for the customer to use. Then we've got some new technology that we're going to be implementing, which is also some tags, smart tags that will be um, attached to all the clothing in the store that will actually uh, allow the consumer to recognize intent. So if they pick something up, a lot of times you can, you know, we've all gotten so used to online, you can click the little star or the heart button or whatever it is people use. Um, for liking something and, and shop in the shopping journey. But when you're in a store, it's not the same. So you either have to take a photograph of it or someone has to take note of it somehow. And what this will allow is just by virtue of you pulling it off of the rack and you have your app open, it will um, register that you have liked that product. And so that intention is there. So you can go back and actually look at your, so quote unquote, your offline browsing history, which is actually very cool. And so that's going to be in, um, implemented relatively soon. What for us also is super interesting is how we are pulling all of this together. Because I think this is what's been the case in the past is everything has been separate and disparate in terms of all the different technologies. Because when you speak to people in different businesses, everyone talks about, oh, yeah, I've got a clientele app. Yeah, we use WhatsApp. Yeah, we, you know, we've got all these different ways of working with the customer and um bringing that journey to life but actually if you break it down none of them are connected one to the other so you don't get a single customer view of all of this coming together so you can't look at browsing history on their what they were looking at before they walked in the store the customer or the um the sales associate when that customer comes in the store won't be able to go oh yes i Recognize you might be going on holiday. I saw that you were just looking at all of these amazing Vedican um, tunics and Pippa Holt. So let me see what else can I add to that um, incredible selection you've already got going or ideas. That is not allowed in, in the way everything is established right now. So this is what's really, really imperative about what we've built um, with the Farfetch team is this idea of how do you pull all these pieces together in one space, collecting all of these hundreds of data points that allow you to better inform this journey as they move ahead and give the customer what they want when they want it. How did that alter how you viewed 
square footage in the store, how you are going to apply use cases to the space. We all have a limited amount of space in our stores. And so the thing that's fantastic is, you know, we open this brand new beautiful store. We do only have a footprint that's about 5,000 square feet. So we can only put so many things in there. We buy much more than what will fit in the, st in the physical store. So how do we get the sales associates to be able to talk to items that aren't there? So we've done this now, this technology with watches and fine jewelry. We're moving into that space. But the, and it's been so much fun because I know it sounds crazy. Like you're, I'm standing in a fine jewelry area. Why would I want to virtually try something on? Well, we can't possibly have it all there. So it's been so fascinating to watch people interact with this in that space and really enjoy it and think about, oh, wow, I, maybe they hadn't been exposed to that before. And now they can go home and do it themselves wherever they're at and, um, and then do it on a larger format if they want to, like an iPad or we've got um, the mobile phones, obviously, that all the essays carry with them. So we've got that as well. And I think that's been, for me, that's a really important next step in the technology play that we're working on. It's incredibly difficult to get it to a level that actually fits in the luxury environment, which is right now why it's sitting predominantly with um, trainers and, and fine watches. But it's a lot of fun. How have you retrained store associates to be more focused on the customer more than ever before and to utilize this technology in a way that drives sales and improves customer experience? No, I mean, I think this is such a great question. I think this is something that we recognized as soon as we wanted to start overlaying the technology into the physical store. It's a huge leap for a lot of the pre-existing sales associates. So there's a huge amount of um, training that has to come into play, them truly understanding the benefit. So there's an education as well in terms of the understanding that benefit and where it takes them and you know not everybody is a digital native in in the retail environment so it's been really important for us that you know we're a 50 year old store and how do you how do you bring everybody along on that journey because you don't necessarily want to have this be only for a digitally native retail staff this is the i could say one of the um, upsides of the pandemic has been that we were um obviously closed for quite a long time, if, if one can say there's a positive. We were closed for quite a long time and really took that time to ensure that the retail teams who obviously weren't working were actually focusing on the training element of this and before we opened the store. And so we've got, you know, 100 plus pages of training manuals and they would test and learn through all of this. Quite an incredible group of people that we have on the shop floor who are dedicated to, I mean, changing the face of retail, which I think that's what a big part of this is for many of them is like they recognize what we're doing is pioneering a new space in terms of where what's that next stage of physical retail looking or I shouldn't even say physical retail. What's that next stage of retail looking like? How are we bringing online and offline together in a space that truly is doing that? And I think they've been super excited about being a big part of that. And I think, you know, for anybody that goes to the store, they can see the enthusiasm that they all have. And it's been a labor of love, but it's also been a labor of um, ensuring that we move to the next stage of what a retail looks like. How are you exploring your ability to use digital technology to drive 
individuals into store and to utilize that dynamic effectively. What we've been talking about in the last year really is, so you've got the space. Now we've got Brook Street open. We've got the technology that we've integrated in. We've been open for a few months. We're really starting to see how people are interacting with that. Um, And as I've mentioned, it's like at all different types of levels and people are really wanting to understand what's next. Where do we go? And I think that you've got this idea of how then do you bring the digital into that same sort of environment? And that's kind of, for me, what we've been talking about is what's that next stage of what digital looks like? And I think the intention piece is a very huge, is a huge part of that. Um, Understanding what that is for people so that you can serve it up. And I think this is where the data collection becomes not such a dirty word and a very meaningful word. And I think if people can, if businesses can prove to consumers that what they're doing with their information is not just making money off of it, but actually serving them up something better, then it becomes a lot more meaningful uh, exchange. You mentioned the customers being delighted and using the tools and the increase in dwell time. What are the results that you are focused on? All the benchmarks that we set ourselves, all the targets that we set ourselves in terms of engagement, how often the sales associates are using the um, connected journey within the shopping experience, intent to purchase, like all of these other metrics that we've put in place have been far exceeded. I think one of the things that I really loved looking at was that, okay, so if people are coming in the store, they're having this connected journey, the sales associates working with them in a meaningful way, and then maybe they don't end up purchasing anything in the store, but they go home because they want to consider it. They maybe want to look at what they have in their closet to see if it goes back with what they were looking at in the store. And they go on to purchase it. And that we have the visibility over. And that for me is mind-blowing that you can see, because this is something we haven't been able to see in the past, is you know these sales associates do all this work in the store, like doing all the wonderful things that they know how to do, the info exchange, the inspiration, um, you know, just having a good time. And then the customer doesn't buy anything and they feel like they've let that customer down without knowing that actually that customer's gone off and bought like that plus like three more things. Um, And this allows us to have that visibility. So that sort of thing for me is like closing that loop and bringing the physical and digital together And I think for me, that was kind of one of the mind-blowing elements of what we're starting to see very early doors is that's absolutely happening. And we have, and we can see it. We know the baskets are higher, considerably higher um, when they go to, in the store, when they go to shop, if they've been through the connected journey. So that for me is another thing that's like an incredible validation of bringing this technology into place. And I really look forward to seeing when we have the tourists coming in because obviously they're gonna be super excited because we've got lots of lots of lovers of Browns um, throughout the world. Getting to see how excited they are about that and what they intend to do with that technology once they come in, I think it's gonna be really exciting. It is, it is, it's really exciting. And as you say, you know, it's finally understanding real attribution I don't think really any of us quite comprehend, you know, how informed retail and product strategies can be with that final piece of the puzzle falling into place. Absolutely. And I think, you know, all the metrics that people have been 
and I guess rightfully so, imposing, if you can say that, on their physical space is now not necessary. It kind of like dispels all of that need for that because it, you have to look at it as a whole. And that's for me how we've been looking at Browns for several years now is like it's a whole. One begets the other. And how do you how do you ensure that you're not focusing too much on one area, but you're actually focusing on the whole? Next week, we're talking about retail channels and moving our discussion on from how people buy luxury goods to where people buy luxury goods. We'll learn how China became the epicenter for luxury retail innovation and discover why supercharged mobile and social commerce consumer behavior in the region means selling strategies such as live streaming and creating communities of consumers to co-sign influencer posts are likely to become globally significant trends soon. We'll also hear how influencer-founded luxury brands may be a new breed of competition for market incumbents. In the meantime, make sure you're following Transforming Luxury wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you'll be guaranteed to get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. And don't forget to review this podcast and share your thoughts with us. Huge thank you to Sebastian, Holly and Melissa, and of course, our partners, Klarna. I'm Robin Mallory-Pratt, and that was Transforming Luxury. Thanks for listening.